Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Once you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be in verse 25. We are in our Luke series that is entitled, The King is Here. And uh, today we have one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever tells. In fact, um, for most people in our country, if you're not a Christian, maybe you've never been to church, you know this story. That's how famous uh, this story is. And rather than reading it all at one time, we're, we're actually going to work through it a little bit differently than we typically do. So Luke 10, verse 25. Here's what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? It's a bad idea. Okay. He said this, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, pause for a moment. When I say eternal life, likely instantly your mind goes to heaven, right? Life forever with God in some kind of disembodied, you know, cloud-like, angel-like experience. Uh, or maybe you have a little bit better theology, and instantly you go to the consummation of all things, when heaven and earth will come crashing back together, and all of the things that are wrong will be restored, and the earth will be like Eden again. Maybe that's what you think when you think of eternal life. And, and certainly this idea of resurrection and being with God is in the Hebrew Bible as a concept. Uh, this is in Job chapter 19. Do we have Job chapter 19? Oh yeah, there it is. Job 19. Uh, here's what Job says. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. Think about that. In the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin, that's such a key word, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, resurrection, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. And so there is within the Hebrew Bible uh, this idea of resurrection and life with God after death. But there is another concept, a more common concept for the idea of eternal life in the Hebrew mind. Eternal life for this teacher of the law wasn't a destination. He wasn't speaking about salvation in his mind. He's already saved simply by being part of the Jewish people. He's saved, right? So, He's asking this very important question. How do I live well in this life? How do I live well in this life? See, there were two concepts about this life in the, eternal, in the Jewish mind. There was eternal living and there was fleeting living. Or eternal life and fleeting life. Fleeting life, that concept was living a life that was only concerned with everyday things. From working and making money to eating and sleeping that's the fleeting life. In fact, there's this kind of famous story that this, uh, of the, about this rabbi who is going past a man's field who he hasn't seen at synagogue in a while. He goes past the man's field and the man is working in his field. And he looks to his students and he says, ah, he's forsaken eternal life and chosen fleeting life. So 
there's this, there's this fleeting life concept, but then there's also this lasting life or life of eternity that refers to living a life focused on matters of eternal importance. And traditionally, Jewish people have considered the study of the Bible, the study of the Hebrew scriptures, as truly living out one's eternal life. Which is why, and I, this never made sense to me until I got this, it's why Jesus immediately goes to the law. Look back down at your Bibles, verse 26. So he says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here's where Jesus goes. It's where no evangelical or no Protestant would go. What is written in the law? Is that what you would ask? If, somebody, if your friend finally came up to you at work and they're like, okay, you know, you've been badgering me about going to church for years. I know you've been praying for me. I've even, I saw my name written in your journal on lunch break. Like, tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life. Is your first response, what's written in the law? Probably not. Probably not. Well, more on that later, but it's clear that Jesus seemed to believe that real life living well could be found in the law. Hmm. So he goes, Okay, well, you're a lawyer, so what is written in the law? What is written in the law? Uh, he answered, uh, or so, sorry, so what is written in the law? And then he replied, how do you read it? Now, this is, I think, you know, it, it may seem very small, but I think this is one of the most important moments recorded in the life of Jesus, because what we find out here is that Jesus believes in interpretation. There's what the Bible says, and there's what the Bible teaches. And sometimes those two things are not as apparent as you might think. There's what the Bible says, and there's what the Bible actually teaches. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are words, all throughout this whole book, there are words. And all of those words have a range of meaning, especially when put in the context of other words. And underneath those ranges of meaning our actual meaning. What is the Bible actually teaching? What is it teaching? And Jesus was aware of this. So there's two questions. He doesn't just say, what, what, you know, what is written in the law? He says, what is written in the law? That's what the Bible says. And how do you read it? What do you think it means? That's interpretation. In other words, what I'm trying to get at, church, is that you cannot say, the Bible says, fill in the blank without acknowledging that you are doing interpretation. It would be better to say, the Bible says this, and it is my take or interpretation that it teaches this as a result. Do you know what I'm saying? Is that uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable for some of us who grew up with this mindset that the Bible says it and that settles it. No, the Bible says it, you interpret it, and then that settles it for you, right? And that, that's what we get, is we're about to get the lawyer's interpretation of the law. So, what is written? How do you read it? How do you read it? Verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and live. If you were to boil the 613 commands for the Jewish people down to a single idea, a single sentence, it would be, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, is that what you got in your Bible in a year reading plan when you went through Leviticus? 
or numbers? <laughs> well, you maybe should have, and more on that later. Now, now here's where we get to, in the story, the religious impulse of all humans. Look down at your Bibles, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this very famous story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, remember, this was a test. He sought to test Jesus. And I just want to say this. If you test Jesus, you may get wrecked like this guy got wrecked. If this was a YouTube video, this would have been Jesus destroys the teacher of the law kind of a thing. Um, see, this, this passage isn't about who your neighbor is. The question is, what sort of neighbor will you be? It's not about who your neighbor is. It's what sort of neighbor will you be? See, what you need to understand is that the problem for every Jew in this time who would have heard this parable of Jesus is that the hero is from the wrong nation. A priest or a Levite, the tribe of the priests, those are real heroes. Those are the ones that were exalted within their culture. But a Samaritan, oh, a Samaritan? They're the villains. See, the Samaritans were half Jews, and maybe you've heard that before, but I hadn't really understood exactly what the history of Samaritans were until this week. Samaritans were half Jews who had come into existence as a result of intermarriage with foreign people during the Assyrian exile. So you have to imagine Assyria conquers uh, Israel, carries off a bunch of people back to Assyria. Bad news to be a captive people in another people's country who don't like you and don't respect your culture or honor your God. And rather than resisting the Assyrians, you would imagine it would, the, the, the anger, the hatred would be so deep. Rather than resisting, they intermarried. They compromised. Now, when Israel later returns from exile back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to repair the temple, the Samaritans, no, 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 you guys can't come back. And so they're hurt. <laughs> The, the, the Jews are hurt, how could you intermarry? And the Samaritans are hurt, how could you keep us from our homeland? So what does this all mean? What is the point of this story? The point is this, could the villain be a hero? And could the villain be a hero because the villain had a more Jewish heart than the Jewish heroes? Listen carefully to this. The villain was more like Abraham 
than the sons of Abraham. Write that down. The villain was more like Abraham than the sons of Abraham. There is a lot in that phrase. To understand what's happening, I need to take you on a Hebrew Bible journey. Are you ready to to take a Hebrew Bible journey? I want to talk about the mission of God and the law. See, most Christians, like I said earlier, if they were asked the same question, how do I get eternal life, wouldn't ask the questioner about their take on the law. They wouldn't be like, well, how do you read Leviticus? Or how do you read Exodus? And sure, you know, right in front of us, the context of this conversation is with a Jewish lawyer asking the question. But still, you know, Jesus says things like this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." Probably not the passage that you pick in the morning when you're doing your devotions and need to pick me up, my guess would be. Um, So like, what? What is going on here? You know, probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of the Christian life, specifically in the West, is what does the law have to do with us today? What does the Hebrew Bible and all of the laws that it teach have to do with me today? I want to answer that. And to do so, we're going to back up even further in the story, and we're going to get a tad granular. I want to ask you kind of a meta question. What is wrong with the world, according to the Bible? What, is, what went wrong with the world? Well, if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, what you will find is what went wrong with the world is that humans decided to not trust That's where the world went wrong. Humans decided to not trust God. Genesis chapter 3 gives gives a suggestion. What if you're in lack? And what if God doesn't care? What if you lack something? And what if God doesn't care about it? What if he doesn't have your best interest in mind? And the serpent says, you shouldn't trust him. Don't trust him. And Adam and Eve they don't trust him. And what we see happens is that if you don't trust God, then you will stop trusting people. And if you stop trusting people, you will compete with them. And you will devour them. And you will live your life east of Eden. Now, what is God's solution to this? What is his solution? God's solution in a name is Abraham. That's his solution. If you look at, if you read Genesis uh, chapter 3 through 11, it's a downward spiral of horrible things. There's a brother killing a brother, and then there's this guy bragging to his multiple wives. Wait, I thought the Eden ideal was one man, one woman, but multiple wives? He's bragging about killing another man. And we have the Tower of Babel, and you have everybody going their own way, turning against God. You have a flood. Okay, so, so what is God's solution to it all? It's Abraham, or in a single word, it's trust. It's trust. The very first time we hear about Abraham is in Genesis chapter 12, and here's what happens between God and Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, 
He hasn't renamed him yet, so his name is Abram at this point. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. Everybody say bless. I will make your name great, and you will be a what? Blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be through you. The solution to a lack of trust is bless the one who trusts to bless the ones who don't. The solution to a lack of trust, we have a problem. Humans don't trust God. They don't trust their creator. What can happen? What, 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 can, what, what can we do? I'm going to bless you and you will become a blessing to people who don't trust me. Now, remember last week, uh, that's pretty much exactly what the 72 were sent out to do from Jesus. They were to bless, to fellowship, to minister, and proclaim. Say it. Bless, fellowship, minister, and proclaim, okay? That's a framework for your life. Let's memorize that. And while Abraham really does this, he does become, he, he is blessed by God and he becomes a blessing. He gets offspring when it was impossible and he becomes a blessing and the seed of the Messiah comes through his line. Does God get a nation of people who trust him and bless the nations? Not really. <laughs> we have, there's some bright moments, but not really. Not really. What God gets instead is a people who are afraid of him, but don't fear him. Do you know what I mean? They're afraid of God, and they don't fear him. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 20... God is uh, coming down the, the, the mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet with the people of Israel. And Moses says to the people this very interesting phrase. This isn't, if you want to jot this down, I don't have a slide for this. You can jot it down. This is in Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses says, don't be afraid to Israel. God is coming to see if you have the fear of the Lord in you. Don't be afraid. God is coming to see if you have the fear of the Lord in you. How many of you guys understand there's a difference between being afraid of God and having the fear of the Lord? Being afraid causes you to withdraw from God and hide, which is actually exactly what Israel did. But the fear of the Lord is, causes you to draw close. In fact, later on in Deuter Deuteronomy chapter 5, God is kind of reminiscing on this moment in Exodus 20, and he says, if only they had a heart to fear me, they would have drawn close. The fear of the Lord is so valuable because the fear of the Lord is the fear of being without him apart from him. Now, what, what does God do? So he doesn't get a people who fear him. He gets a people who are afraid of him. So how does God then disciple? How is God going to parent an entire nation into the heart that Abraham once had? How is he going to lead these people who are afraid of him who didn't do what Abraham did, who didn't develop relationship like Abraham developed, how is he going to disciple them into the heart that Abraham had? Well, the Ten Commandments, right? And the subsequent communal laws of Israel. In fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, here's what he says, the law was like a babysitter for us, looking after us until the coming of the Messiah so that we might be given covenant membership on the basis of faithfulness. The law, when you think about that Jewish law, what, what, how should you think about it? It is like a babysitter trying to get the heart of Abraham into a people who have Moses. 
If you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you'll often see laws following behavior. So you're, you'll see moments like where Aaron's sons, so the, they're the Levitical priesthood, they're the priests, Aaron's sons are priests, they go and they make unauthorized sacrifices in the, in the temple, okay? And the following, and they die, okay? So the following chapter is a whole chapter about how to offer correct sacrifice to Yahweh. So in a sense, you see, what you see is you see Israel is living out of line with God, and God is then going, oh, They don't get it. I need the babysitter to come in and to remind them how to have a heart like Abraham, how to walk with me, how to develop trust with me. So here's where you should have a question in your mind. What was so special about Abraham's heart that God is using Moses and the law to disciple people into Abraham's heart? Well, um, this, what I'm about to, uh, to teach you guys is literally we could spend a whole series on And I'm going to briefly do it in like three minutes, okay? So bear with me. And I also want to give credit where I got this. This is from Gary Brashears. Gary is one of my professors. He's head of theology over at Western Seminary and has made like just a huge impact um, on my life and many, many other people's lives. Uh, Abraham did four things that encompass the heart God is aiming for with every person. He did four things that encompass the heart uh, that, that God is aiming for in every person. So these are four statements about the character of Abraham. And I would actually recommend that you take a picture of this and you review this, or if you're really fast at writing, you you write it all down. Let me walk you through these four moments in Abraham's life that make him so special. In each of these moments, God makes a statement about Abraham and his character, and they are very, very important. So in Genesis chapter 12, which we just read, uh, God says, go from your people, go from your land, go to the land I will show you. And Abraham ends up in Canaan. Now, the God of Canaan is Baal. Can you guys say that? Baal. Maybe you've read uh, that word in in the Old Testament as you've been uh, doing reading. Uh, Maybe you pronounced it Baal. Uh, It's Baal, right? And Abraham goes into Baal land. And what does he do? He doesn't build an altar to Baal, which is what you should do when you go into a new country. You should make sure you appease the God of that country and at least appease the worshipers of the God of that country. No, Abraham makes a sacrifice to Yahweh in Baal land. He loves God in Baal land. So the very first thing that we learn about Abraham is that Abraham is loyal to Yahweh, though it puts him in jeopardy. He's loyal to Yahweh in Baal land. Okay? Second thing, second moment of Abraham's life is Genesis chapter 15. Some of you guys probably know the story. God, Abraham goes, how are you going to bless me? You know, you gave me this promise. You made me leave my home. That was years ago. How are you going to bless me? And God says, I'm going to give you a child. Abraham is like 105 years old. His wife is, you know, uh, very old as well. It's impossible for them to have children. But Abraham believes God in Genesis chapter 15. It says he believes God. He trusts Yahweh, takes him at his word, even when it makes no sense at all. Yahweh sees his trust and recognizes this as righteousness. Now, this is very important. Abraham's act of trust is righteousness versus righteousness is a gift given as a reward to trust. In other words, God doesn't say, oh, Abraham, trust me. Oh, that's so nice of him. I'm going to give him a coat of righteousness to wear around for his life. No. He's, he looks at Abraham and says, Abraham believed him, and he, give, he says, that's righteousness. That is righteousness. Abraham's righteous, right? That is implications for uh, salvation in your identity later on in the New Testament, by the way, in case you didn't know. Uh, Genesis chapter 18 
This is the next moment in his life. This is right around the, uh, it's right around the, the moment when um, God is considering destroying uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, God has this kind of like Trinitarian meeting and Abraham feeds the, the Godhead. And God says, am I gonna hide from Abram what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And remember, Abram's uh, nephew Lot lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to get into more of this, but essentially what happens is Abraham obeys uh, by keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. He advocates for Lot. He advocates for people who don't deserve it. And these two words are very important. He does righteousness, sedekah. Can you say that with me? Sedekah. And he does justice, mishpat. You're going to see these, you're going to see those words show up um, if you, if you were to, if you read Hebrew, which I don't, I just, I have programs that help me. Uh, but you would see those words pop up all over the scriptures. So that's the, that's the, the, uh, the third thing that we see Abraham do. And then the last thing that we see Abraham do is Abraham looks for provision in Messiah. If you remember in Genesis chapter 22, he goes to sacrifice Isaac, right? His only son. God says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac is old enough to carry wood up a mountain. He's carrying his own sacrifice on his back. Does that sound familiar to anybody? He's carrying his own sacrifice up his back to the top of the mountain to be sacrificed. And, his, and, and Isaac says to Abraham, says, but where's the sacrifice? And what, is, what does uh, Abraham say? He says, God will provide. Later on, when he's about to sacrifice his son, God stops him and provides a ram. And it says that that mountain is called, it will be provided. If you look geographically, that mountain is Mount Calvary. It's the same place where Christ was sacrificed, the same location. It will be provided. So what what does Abram do? He looks for provision in the Messiah. So, okay, just briefly, Abraham's loyal, though it puts him in jeopardy, right? Abraham believes God when it makes no sense. Abraham obeys God and advocates for the worthless person or the people who don't deserve it. In Genesis chapter 22, he looks for provision in the Messiah. That's the heart of Abraham. That's the heart of Abraham. That's relationship with God at the very beginning of the Bible. See, you thought relationship with God began in Romans. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. It's been around a long time. Now, specifically, I want to focus on this idea that God says, Abraham does what is right and just, Sedekah and Mishpat. This statement about Abraham comes in this context of him sticking up for Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what does it mean to do righteousness and justice? These, these words show up all throughout the Hebrew Bible, but in Ezekiel, they're very clearly defined. So here's the definition that we get. Uh, oh, it cut, off my, it cut off my slide. So this is, just so you know, this is Ezekiel 18, uh, verse 5 through 9. I don't know if that matters, so you could write that down. But this is what it says. Suppose there is a Sedekah man, a righteous man, who does what is mishpat and Sedekah, what is right and just. Okay, what does he do? Well, he doesn't eat at the mountain shrines. Okay, so he doesn't worship the gods of the land. Or look or, or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He's faithful to his own wife. He doesn't have sex with people he's not married to. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. In other words, he doesn't lend money at interest. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from doing wrong. That man is Sedekah. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. 
That is Sedekah and Mishpat. And in summary, here's what my professor Gary would say about this. Righteousness and justice is a community where relationship with God, others, self, and creation are well-ordered, giving people dignity as God does. That's the community of Sedekah and Mishpat. The righteous person is the person who, because of trust in Yahweh, because of loyalty in Baal land, because of obedience, makes a community like this possible in their home, their work, and their school. In our language, at our church, they become a fountain. They're the kind of person that becomes a fountain because of their trust, their loyalty, their obedience, and their hope actually gave them an Abraham heart. They got an Abraham heart. And this is why the prophet spoke like this. This is Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now watch what happens when when that happens. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The law is pretty good. Here's my point. Here's my point. Look down at your Bibles. We're back in Luke. We're back in Luke. Look down at your Bibles. Uh, Verse 26. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And, that, and what I'm saying is that is the summary of Abraham's heart that Moses tried to parent you into. And that's eternal life. To be loyal to God in Baal land, to trust God when it doesn't make sense, to obey doing righteousness and justice and to hope in Jesus. It's loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. And what I'm saying is that what God began with Abraham was intended to be continued through us, Samaritan or Jew, Gentile, wherever you come from. But here's the problem. Can we come up for air? Do we need to like, kind of like, I see some of you are like, oh, okay, that was a lot. Take a deep breath. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. There is a specific way the gospel works and a specific way that the gospel doesn't work. And that is what we see with this guy, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. He's just heard Abraham's heart and Jesus is going, that's eternal life. Have the heart of Abraham. But he wanted to justify himself. And I want to say this to you this morning, church. Justify yourself or lose control. Those are your options. What he's saying is, give me more laws. Give me more rules. I want to know just how far to go, just how far to extend myself. This guy doesn't want Abraham or Abraham's heart. He wants Moses and more of it. And this is one of the core issues of salvation for Paul. In Romans chapter four, here's what Paul says. Now to the one who works, to the one who does Moses, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God. Who does that sound like? Abraham. 
who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. He's talking about Abraham. Do you see what's being said? You can work, you can do Moses. Or you can trust, you can do Abraham. You want to work for it? You want the law? Then your wages will be whatever your work deserves. And let me tell you right now, that's a risky road. You know, Jesus says, if your righteousness is not even better than the Pharisees, who were perfect in the letter of the law adherence to Moses, then you won't be in the kingdom. And those guys, those Pharisees, they were literally going through their spice drawer and they were tithing 10% of all of their spices. So yeah, you're probably not going to beat them. But this is the lawyer mentality. The lawyer mentality is, I don't want to owe God. I want him to owe me. I don't want to owe him. I want him to owe me. So rather than developing in me a heart through a love relationship, through trust, my adherence to the rules removes from me the obligation of whole life surrender. That's why it's attractive. That's why it's attractive. In a sense, the lawyer before Jesus is asking a simple question. Next slide. What must I do to be good with God without him having my heart? How can I get that internal sense of righteousness without losing control over my life? So here's the point. There are two roads through this life. Justify yourself and remain in control of the cost. Or... Trust God and you will lose control of the cost. One of the central beliefs of Christians is that there's no good apart from God. In fact, this is what, uh, what Mary Grace was talking about earlier during our offering uh, portion of our gathering. One of, the, of our central beliefs is there's no good apart from God. In other words, the gift for a life well-lived isn't what God has produced. It's him himself. Let me say that one more time. The gift for a life well-lived isn't what God has produced. It is him himself. Now, let me say this. That makes Christianity the most unreasonable religion of all time. That is so unreasonable. See, a a reasonable religion is one that puts its demands at the front. It says, hey, you want to be a part of our religion? Here's the list of rules. You're going to eat this. You're going to pray like this. You're going to go here on this day. And if you adhere to these rules, to this law, then you're going to get belonging. And you're going to get an internal sense that you're part of the right people. But an utterly unreasonable religion says, do you love me? How unreasonable. Love What does love have to do with it? What does love have to do with the messy work of righteousness? Well, for Christians, it has everything to do with it. See, Jesus, you know, he tells us, he says, you need to count the cost of me. You need to count the cost. And you know what I've realized? I've been a Christian for like 17 or 18 years. What I realized just a few months ago is that I could have never known what he costs. I couldn't have known at 17 what he costs. The cost of Jesus is almost always increasing in unexpected ways with each season of life. And it's so unreasonable. 
How could I have known at 17 years old what it would be like to be ridiculed by people who were once friends for what I believe? Or to be scorned by, I had another meeting this week, to be scorned by swaths of Christians for believing that the Holy Spirit is alive and active and still moves today. How could I have known the cost of what I would have been asked uh, to give up things that other people are able to do that I'm just not able to do because that's what surrender means? I wouldn't know at 17 what loyalty to Yahweh would cost me in Baal land. I wouldn't know the cost of trusting him in every season or the cost of being a person of hope I'm looking for provision in Messiah in the midst of fear, in the midst of pain, in the midst of evil. And in that moment of frustration, I didn't know the cost. I felt the Lord say something to me. He said, when I asked you to count the cost, I didn't ask you to count the cost of what it would mean to follow me. I intended you to count the cost of what it would mean to not have me. That is the question that you must answer. That is the only question that you must answer. And when you answer that, there really is no cost. The fear of the Lord instructs you, and you would do anything for relationship. The cost of not having you is so great, there's no cost. I'd be willing not to pay (laughs) to get you. And that is what makes Christianity so different from any other system for righteousness. You know, one of my heroes, the late Tim Keller, um, in an interview, he was asked about the moral failings of pastors in the West and the need for accountability. You know, it's like Christians, whenever something goes wrong, it, it must be a system problem. It must be a structure problem. And so he was asked about, you know, what about accountability? Here's how Tim Keller responded. This is so profound. He said, the only real accountability that cannot be avoided is when you have experienced God's presence and his love, and it is so delicious that you say, I do not want to lose that. I can't lose that. That is the only accountability I know. Even accountability with my wife, I could lie. The real question is, are you having fellowship with God in his love with Christ in his grace and the Holy Spirit in his comfort. And if you do, that is the thing you say, I cannot live without that. Abraham, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is an internal rule of love. That is our religion. And this is what Jesus is getting at. It doesn't matter what laws you follow until you get a heart like Abraham, or should I say, until you get a heart like this Samaritan, you don't get it. And you likely won't until you say, God, reveal to me the love you have for me, that I might love you and love others like you love me. Let's pray for that. Go ahead and stand. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.